Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Let me give you just a quick little commercial before we get started here. The conference is coming up in less than three weeks, so if you're planning on coming, you need to register so we know how many people are coming. So register, get your room set. Um, it's uh, springtime here when the conference starts, and uh, so we want to make sure you get a room. All right, uh, looking forward to it. Like I said, it's less than three weeks away. We're going to have a great time. All right, um, today is the single most significant event in the human race ever took place. It was the first Sunday after Passover in the year, about the year AD 31. It's the day we're celebrating today, Resurrection Sunday. Or as the Hebrews would call it, the Feast of First Fruits. It was something that the Hebrews looked forward to. We now look back on the completed work. Let me just say this. I always have to put this in on this Sunday. The Easter celebration is pagan. Okay? I'm sorry. Even the name, the name Easter, is the name of a pagan god. Easter, that's the name of the god that people worship. And it's quite interesting, I think, that in the context of the feasts, God gave this commandment to Israel. He said, now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard, watch, do not mention the name of other gods. Nor let them be heard from your lips. God said, I don't want you mentioning other gods. And yet, the Christian church names a day after a pagan god and somehow confuses it with the resurrection. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued what was called the Easter Rule, which states that Easter shall be celebrated on the first Sunday that occurs after the first moon honor after the vernal equinox. So the church adopted the pagan holiday of Easter and celebrated on the biblical holiday of the Feast of First Fruits. By doing this, the significance of the feast, the significance of the resurrection is lost in all this nonsense about Easter. Let me get this straight. Please understand this. This day is not about bunnies. It's not about colored eggs. It's not about chocolate. It's not about marshmallow chicks. It's not about dressing up. This day is about the resurrection. And to me, that's way too important to cover it over with all this other nonsense that goes on today. And yet, they somehow tied Christ in with the Easter Bunny. And then your kids grow up and find out the Easter Bunny isn't true. So maybe the, you lied to him about Christ also. Maybe he's not true either. Let's look, alright, I'm done with my rant against Easter, okay? Let's, let's look at what the Bible says about the significance of this day. You'll find out there's nothing about baskets or bunnies or any of that stuff, alright? To do so, we need to go back to the book of Leviticus. Yeah, that's a real book, alright? Old Covenant Israel had seven holidays that were prescribed to them by Yahweh. These seven holidays are discussed throughout the Bible in both testaments, But only in Leviticus 23 are all seven holidays listed in chronological sequence. These seven holidays are called the Feasts of Yahweh. Leviticus 23, 4 says, These are the appointed times of Yahweh. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at all the times appointed for them. Now the King James Version here says, These are the Feasts 
of Yahweh. The word feast here is moed, and it really means appointed times, and that's how the New American Standard translated. These are the appointed times. They're times that have been appointed by Yahweh. For what? He says, as a holy convocation. Now, the words holy convocation mean rehearsal. In other words, the feasts of Yahweh were appointed times of worship for Israel. They served as a dress rehearsal, basically. You understand, if you're you're doing a wedding, you have a rehearsal. You practice ahead of time, so you're, you're right. Well, every one of these was a rehearsal of the realities that were coming. And so they went through these year after year after year, picturing what the realities were going to be when they got there. They're not just part of the heritage of Israel. There's something much, much deeper going on in these feasts. And fundamentally, these seven feasts represent and typify the sequence, timing, and significance of the major events in Yahweh's redemptive career. These seven feasts picture the Christian message about redemption. That's what's so remarkable. You look at these feasts and there's redemption. Clearly laid out to the Israelites. The Christian message is in the feast in Leviticus 23. They commence at Calvary, where Yeshua voluntarily gave Himself for the sins of the world, which was called Passover. And they climax at the consummation of the Messianic Kingdom at the second coming of our Lord. These seven feasts depict the entire redemptive career of Messiah. And no, the number seven is a, a biblical number of completion or totality. Let's just look at these first couple feasts. I want to get to the first fruits, but let me give you the first two before we get to first fruits, and then we'll uh, we'll tie this together. Leviticus twenty three five says, "In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is Yahweh's Passover." Now, the month that Yahweh was referring to here is the month of Nisan. Prior to Yahweh's establishing the month of Nisan as the first month in the religious calendar, it was the seventh month in the civil calendar. But God changed the calendar because He wanted these feasts to be foremost. He gave the religious calendar so we'd understand these feasts which give His appointed times foreshadowing very important events in redemption. And Passover is the foundational feast. The other six that follow are really built on it. Passover occurs in the spring of the year. He says, in the first month on the 14th day of the month. So, on the 14th day of the Hebrew month Nisan, which to us would be March or April, from sundown Friday the 3rd, two days ago, to sundown Saturday the 4th, was Passover this year on the Jewish calendar. So, Passover was yesterday. It ended sundown yesterday. The Jewish Passover ended. Now, One of the many words that would describe what happened in Egypt 3,500 years ago, I think the best way we can describe it is redemption. The events were real, the miracles genuine, all wrought by Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who was greater than all the gods of Egypt. And that's basically what that showdown was about. Every one of those plagues was directed against a god. And the Lord's basically saying, you like these gods? You want to worship them? Here they are. You like frogs? Here's frogs. They had a frog god named Hecht. Hecht was their frog god. He goes, you got it! You got frogs. And they were everywhere. They liked, they worshipped these things. And what do you do when your god is everywhere and you can't even get in your bed, you can't cook, you can't just, you know, you can't squish him, you can't kill him. It's your god. Well, you know who won that showdown. And a group of slaves were redeemed so they could worship the true and the living God. But such a redemption was not without cost. 
You remember, the Israelites had to kill a lamb. And they had to put that blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel came through, if that blood was on the doorpost, he passed over them. That was a picture. That lamb pointed to the Lamb of God, Yeshua the Christ. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul draws the parallel for all times when he says, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Yeshua was the Passover lamb. So they did these things in picture. Again, they're rehearsing. They take this lamb, they kill the lamb. Blood has to be shed for our sins. And then look what happens when Yeshua shows up in John 1.28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the next day, he saw Yeshua coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's speaking to the Israelites who understood the Passover. They understood the, the Lamb and the crucifying of this Lamb over and over. And now they're saying, There's the Lamb of God. And by the way, for those of you who are visiting, Yeshua is Jesus' real name. Okay? Jesus is the name we've... It came from a Greek. They, they took his Hebrew name Yeshua. They converted it into Greek. It's Iesus. And then later they just stuck a J in front of it. Because prior to the 17th century, there wasn't even a J in the English language. All right. So Jesus would, they, he'd be like, who's that? I don't know who that is. Yeshua was his Hebrew name, his real name. So that's where I'm getting that from. So Passover celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. These people are out there, they're putting blood on the door, you know, so the Lord will pass over. Here's what's interesting. On this very same day, about 1600 years after this started, the anti-type comes at Calvary and Yeshua is crucified on that very same day. While Israelites are celebrating the Passover, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, is being crucified. This begins the second exodus to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. All right, the second feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, on the fifteenth day of the same month, Nisan, there is to be a Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So he appoints this Feast of Unleavened Bread to begin the very next day after Passover. That's what it says, the fifteenth. Passover is on the fourteenth. This is on the fifteenth of the Hebrew month, Nisan. It was to last for seven days. The first and the last days of this feast are recognized as high Sabbaths. He says, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to Yahweh. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. So on the first night, again on the seventh night, it was a holy convocation. These are high Sabbaths. So today, according to the Jewish calendar, would be the the day of unleavened bread, which would be a high Sabbath. So yesterday the Passover was on the Jewish Sabbath, and today would be a high Sabbath, so both these would be Sabbaths. Not that it really matters anymore, because these feasts were fulfilled when the Antitype showed up. Now the days of unleavened bread did not serve as a reminder of what those ancient Israelites did or were to do, but they of what Yahweh did for them. Yahweh freed them from the wicked rule and tyranny and slavery in Egypt. And freedom from slavery in Egypt is the type. The anti-type is freedom from sin and death. The Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the Exodus. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread 
For on that very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. The rescue of the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery occurred during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the day they left. Remembering God's deliverance and their exodus is a major theme of this festival. Now, Yeshua was buried on the same day He was killed. He was killed on Passover. He was put in the ground before the sun set, so that's the same day. To the Hebrews, the day begins at sunset. Not like us, our day begins at midnight. Their day, when the sun goes down, that starts a new day, ends the old day. So he's buried the same day he's killed on Passover. He's put in the earth before the sunset. Unleavened bread starts on the 15th day of Nisan. It pictures deliverance. The children of Israel left Egypt on the first day of unleavened bread. And they had crossed the Red Sea before the seventh day of the feast came about. So unleavened bread is the seventh day feast picturing perfect redemption. They were delivered. They were on the other side by the time this feast was finished. Now the third feast is called first fruits. He says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land, which I'm about to give you and reap the harvest, then you shall bring in a sheaf of first fruits. I know this is kind of weird to us because we don't understand all this, but whenever they had a harvest, they would cut down the first sheaves and they would bring them in and they would wave them to the Lord. In other words, we're giving you the first, we're giving you the best of the harvest. It was a guarantee the rest of the harvest would come in. He says, and you shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh for you to be accepted. On the day after Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, what day is this feast on? We know the Passover is on the 14th, unleavened bread is on the 15th. What date is this one? It says on the day after the Sabbath. Right? Well, let me break these down here. 14th day, Passover. 15th day, Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's the next one? What's the date? When does it say it takes place? Any date? You say anybody see a date there? There's no date given for this feast. Now, most scholars say the Feast of First Fruits takes place on the 16th of Nisan. Because they take the Sabbath here to refer to the Sabbath of the first day of unleavened bread. Remember, the 15th, that Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was a Sabbath. So if it's the day after the Sabbath, then it's just the next day. Well, if it's the next day, why wouldn't he just say on the 16th? Because it would always be the same, right? It would always be the 16th. If it follows that one, that's on the 15th. The 16th usually follows, do this. 16th usually follows the 15th, okay? <laughs> So why not just say the 16th? Well, I believe that the, the problem here is the Sabbath he's referring to here is a weekly Sabbath. It's not the high Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week. Let me try to explain this. If first fruits occurs on the 16th of Nisan and pictures Christ's resurrection, this only allows Christ to be in, in the grave for a day and a half. But the Lord said He was going to be in the grave for how long? Three days. Alright, look at Matthew 12. And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, but yet no sign will be given you but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. So this word sign here means samion. Basically what they're saying is, Show us a miracle. Do something spectacular so we can believe in you. Now he's been raising dead people. He's been you know walking on water, feeding the crowds. Show us a miracle. I think you've seen plenty of miracles. But watch what he says to him. 
He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, I take this to mean three full days, 72 hours. Because he says three days and three nights. He doesn't just say three days. A lot of scholars say, well, you know, he was in the he got crucified on Friday and he rose on Sunday. That's part of day. Any part of a day is counted as a whole day. Well, I don't know where they got that from, but it's not 72 hours, not a day and a night. We know that Yeshua was buried at the end of the 14th, just before the sun went down. He was in the tomb on the 15th of Nisan and would have remained in the tomb until the 18th of Nisan. Right? No date given in Scripture of the Feast of First Fruits because it's always on the day after the Sabbath, which would make it Sunday. It's always on a Sunday. The dates change, but this day, First Fruits, and did you notice that the church celebrates Easter what day? It's always on a Sunday, right? doesn't matter. I mean, it moves all over the calendar. All right, but it's always on a Sunday because they're trying to somehow pattern the first roots, but they got it all wrong. So the date would change from year to year, but it's always on a Sunday. Now, what's interesting is that if you go back, and they have computers that can do this now, computer graphics and stuff, you can go back, you put all the coordinates in, and you can go back and you can find out what day in AD 31, you know, what day it was on, and all this, you know, all these, what day the actual 14th was on. And uh, it just so happens that from the day of the 14th till the day after the Sabbath was three days. What a coincidence. How did God know that? He got he just guessed at it and got it right. huh? If Christ spent three days and three nights in the grave, this would mean, I hate to do this, but this would mean the traditional idea of Him being crucified on Friday is incorrect, right? And why is it called Good Friday? Yeah, they crucified our Lord, Good Friday. Good for who? Yeah, it is good for us, okay? But, you know, the church has that on Friday. But I think they're wrong. I believe Yeshua was crucified on Wednesday. He was buried at the end of the day. He was in the grave from Thursday at sundown until Saturday at sundown, which is three days and three nights or 72 hours. He arose from the dead on Sunday sometime after the sun went down Saturday evening. I think the confusion about him being on Friday comes from this text in John 19. Says so the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that their bodies should be not remain on the cross. Now, the day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. All right, it's called preparation because that's when you prepared everything. On the Sabbath day, you didn't cook, you didn't gather firewood, you didn't light a fire, you didn't do anything on the Sabbath. So the day of preparation, you got all ready, and on the Sabbath, you rested. So it was the day of preparation, and they didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. But that Sabbath was a high Sabbath. They asked Pilate that his legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So people see this and, you know, remember that the first day of unleavened bread is a high Sabbath. No work is to be done. We assume they had to get Yeshua's body in the tomb before the weekly Sabbath, but it wasn't the weekly Sabbath. It was the high Sabbath of unleavened bread. So Passover is on the 14th. Unleavened bread occurs on the 15th and last to the 22nd. And first fruits occurs on the day after the Sabbath. Again, Sunday. Always a Sunday. So on the Jewish calendar, this is an interesting year, first fruits would be when? Passover was Saturday. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Today would be unleavened bread until sundown. The day after the Sabbath, so first fruits would be today. It'd be today. Which would mean 
He died on a Saturday and raised on Sunday. That's not three days at all. But see, none of that matters anymore. It only had to do that in the year that he was crucified. Because from then on, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not significant. Those days move all over the place. But the year he was crucified, there was three days and three nights. Now, as to the significance of first fruits, I think it's very clear in the Scripture, no room for doubt, first fruits pictures the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So on one particular morning, on the first day of the week, the feast of firstfruits was being waved before the altar in the temple. And on that particular morning, some women were coming to a tomb and finding it empty. 1,600 years before Christ's resurrection, Yahweh predicted in type and shadow that Yeshua would be crucified on the 14th. He would raise from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. And it happened exactly as the Bible said it would. I think that prophecy proves the truthfulness of this book beyond any shadow of a doubt. Yahweh says He predicts certain things would happen and they happen exactly like He said they would. There's no other book in the world that contains this specific type of prophecy found throughout the pages of the Bible. And people are still arguing, oh, they said this and it hasn't happened, you know, this hasn't taken place. And yet, you get archaeologists today that are under, discovering more and more truth and they're saying, hey, look at the Bible's right. Hey, look, the Bible's right about that. Hey, look, was, I, I knew that anyway. I don't need an archaeologist to tell me that. But it's kind of cool that they're discovering things that The Bible has said it has been true for such a long time. So Christ was resurrected in the first century, three days after His crucifixion. Well, then the question is, we're talking about resurrection. What about us? This day is about resurrection. So, I mean, we want to know about our resurrection, right? When are believers going to get resurrected? Well, let's look at what Paul tells us about resurrection in his trial before Felix. In Paul's defense, he's standing before the court and he makes this defense. He says, but this I admit to you, according to the way, which they call a sect. He's talking about Christianity. That's the way. I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. Paul says, you know what I believe? Everything that's there in the Tanakh. That's that's all been written. That's what I'm believing. All right. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul here says there's going to be a resurrection. But does he tell us when it's going to be? Well, not in that version. But if you look at Young's literal translation, he says, having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a rising again from the dead. See, the words shall certainly, in the top one there, in the New American Standard, are the Greek word mellow. And mellow, in the present active infinitive, is combined to say it is constantly translated about to. In other words, Paul's talking to the first century audience. He says there is about to be a resurrection. Now, Christ's resurrection is already past. He's not talking about that. He's talking about there's a general resurrection. If we're going to understand what Paul's saying about resurrection, we have to understand audience relevance. See, people read the Bible like it was written to us today. Oh, look, the Lord's coming back. Yeah, he said that 2,000 years ago. Okay, so who was he talking to? 
See, Paul is not talking this. When we read this and we say, look at Paul says there's about to be, cool, it's about to happen. Well, who's Paul talking to? He's talking to Felix. He's talking to Ananias. He's talking to Tertullius. He's talking to the elders. And guess what? They're all dead and gone. 2,000 years ago he said this. So if the timing of the resurrection was soon, and Paul said it's going to happen soon, what does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? It must be spiritual. Because listen, time defines nature. If we know if the Bible says it was it's past, because it was to happen soon, 2,000 years ago, and people soon means soon. If soon can mean 2,000 years, then it means nothing. Alright? Because that's not what you think of when you think of the word soon. Time defines nature. And what we need to seek to understand is exactly what Paul meant by the resurrection. What did he mean by that? Because a lot of people talk about the resurrection, but they have different ideas. The traditional view that is held by most of the church today is when the believer dies... Their body goes into the grave and their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. So they're with the Lord now, but they're waiting for the body. All right. Then at the return of Christ, he takes all the bodies out of the grave, you know, puts them all back together and on the way to heaven, their spirit joins the body. So now they're back in their body and then he transforms them before they get to heaven. So they're spiritual bodies. And so you have all these graves busting open. I'm sure you've seen pictures depicting this. You know, and people coming out of the graves and they're on their way to heaven. And that's pretty much how the church describes the resurrection. It's what the church teaches, but is it what the Bible teaches? I think you understand this, but there's a great diversity between what the church teaches and what the Bible teaches. Alright? Why is that? I don't know. They use the Bible. Some of them. You think they come up with the same thing. The first thing we have to understand about resurrection is it's resurrection from the dead. Alright? See that? He says there's a rising again of the dead. And by dead here, I mean spiritual death. See, when Adam sinned, God promised them the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He didn't die physically, but he died spiritually. And here's what we have to understand. Man's problem is a spiritual problem. It's spiritual. And that is we have been separated from God by sin. Because of Adam's sin, see Adam represented the mankind, he sinned, we all sinned with him. As a representative, he sinned in our behalf. Wasn't that nice of him? And therefore we all are born dead in the sense we're separated from God. See, God created this garden, the Garden of Eden, which basically was a temple. And he created man and he brought him into the temple into the presence of God. It was sacred space. It was God's presence. But man sinned, so what happened? He had to kick him out of the sacred space, kick him out of the garden. He couldn't be in God's presence because of his sin. And the whole story of the Bible is God redeeming mankind to bring him back into sacred space. Bring him back into his presence again. And because Yeshua came and was died and was resurrected from the dead, He can restore man Back into fellowship with God. That fellowship that we lost because of Adam. He came to redeem man from death. To resurrect man back into the presence of God. And the Bible is God's book about how that renewal is taking place. Resurrection is not about physical bodies coming up out of the grave. That's not what it's talking about. It's about restoring man into God's presence. Much more important than coming out of a grave. Prior to Yeshua's messianic work, the time that Christ was on earth, prior to that, nobody ever went to heaven. 
John 3.13 says this, No one has ascended into heaven. So at this time, nobody's gone to heaven. So people are dying. Where are they going? Where'd they go? They had to go somewhere, right? Well, the Bible talks about they went to a holding place of the dead called Sheol in the Old Testament or called Hades in the New. And what this place amounted to was a waiting place. Uh, Sheol could mean the grave. It can mean a lot of different things. But, you know, bottom line is this. Sheol was not heaven. It wasn't God's presence. It was separation from His presence. So they're not in the presence of God. They die. They go to this waiting place. And you hear them talk about death throughout the Tanakh, the First Testament. And and what do they... It's just dark. It sounds like, you know, there's no one's going to praise you from the grave. You know, that's the end of it. It's just done. Because when you go there, you're just there. Nothing. You're waiting. What were they waiting for? They were waiting for the resurrection. Acts 2.29 Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What's he saying? David died and he's dead. The tomb's still there. Okay? He says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. So David was dead, but he didn't go to heaven. But he had a promise that someday he would. Yahweh had promised to redeem His people from the grave. They had this promise. They had this hope that He would redeem them. Look at Hosea 13.14 Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Now I want you to know here that this is a parallelism in Hebrew. So Sheol and death are basically the same thing. Alright? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Psalm 49.15 But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. So they had these promises, and they had this hope, and they looked forward to someday God would take them out of this waiting place and bring them into His presence, but nobody could go into His presence until sin was paid for. And most people believe that sin was paid for on the cross. That was the beginning. But until Christ returned, it was not accomplished. When Christ returned... The way to heaven was open and God took those people. So to be taken out of Sheol, this waiting place, and to be brought in the presence of God, that's what the Bible calls resurrection. That's what resurrection is. It has nothing to do with physical bodies coming out of the graves. Daniel spoke of this in Daniel 12 too. He said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's going to be a time when people arise from the dead. Well, when will it happen, Daniel? Can you give us some idea? Yeah, Daniel tells us exactly when it will happen. In, in verse 13, he says, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Now, we know this took place at AD 70. The age he's talking about here is the Jewish age. That ended when the temple was destroyed, and that happened in A.D. 70. So the disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city, meant the end of the old covenant age, the inauguration of the new age. That's when resurrection took place. Now, since we know that resurrection is past, we know that it was spiritual, not physical. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the old covenant. It's not a biological resurrection. You're not going to get all these little pieces of your body back together so you can go to be in the presence of the Lord. Because guess what? The Lord doesn't have a body and angels don't have bodies. You're not going to need one when you're there and you're not going to want one when you're there. And you say, how do I live without a body? I don't know. I haven't been there yet. Okay? 
But these, all through their life, have been waiting to be reunited with Yahweh in the heavenly kingdom. Now we can see from the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus several things about the resurrection belief of the early Christians. Notice this text in Timothy. And their talk will spread like gangrene. You know, that's not a good thing, right? (laughs) Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. Alright, these guys are off base. They're not in the truth. Now watch what they say. Saying that the resurrection has already taken place. That's funny because that's what I say. Why is it different what they say and what I say? Because I'm saying that I agree with these guys. But the difference is time. They said it 2,000 years ago. Alright, and it hadn't taken place then. Now watch. The early Christians must have believed that the resurrection would be spiritual in nature. And therefore, not subject to confirmation by physical evidence. If the early Christians had believed that the resurrection would involve physical bodies coming out of the graves, as is taught today, Hymenaeus and Philetus could never have convinced anyone that it happened. These guys are out saying, the resurrection took place, and you're like, the grave's still there. We can dig up the body, you could still see it. What are you saying? It's, it's, how it hasn't, it's already happened. You're crazy. You're nuts. Well, those Christians must have also believed that life on earth would go on with no material change after the resurrection. Right? They didn't believe that there'd be a renovation of the planet as a consequence of the resurrection, like so many Christians today. Today, the idea is when the, when the Lord comes back in the second coming, the planet will be destroyed, you know, the resurrection takes place. So, here's these two guys saying the resurrection took place, and they're like, look out your window! Of course it didn't. The planet's still there. The dead people are still there. They couldn't have convinced anybody of that. No one would have paid any attention to them. So they must have had a different view about resurrection than today most people do. And the reason that their teaching on the resurrection had already happened was overthrowing the faith of some was they were postulating a consummation of the spiritual kingdom while the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. Thus it was a mixture of law and grace. They're saying it's already happened. There goes the temple's still there. These two don't mix together. This destroyed the faith of some, making the works of the law part of the new covenant. So these guys were off, but to say it happened today, or 2,000 years later, it has happened. All right, so I'm saying that the resurrection is not a physical raising of bodies from the grave. It's a raising of old covenant saints into the presence of Yahweh. Well, what about Christ? Was his resurrection physical? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I deliver to you, a first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised. So was it physical? Yes, absolutely. And people say, you don't believe Christ raised physically. I never said that. I absolutely do believe He raised physically. It was physical. Will they say, won't ours be? No. Why? How come He got physical and we don't? Christ's physical resurrection was simply a sign to the apostles that He had done what He promised. You could look at him, you could touch him, you could see. It verified for the disciples that the resurrection had taken place. It was essential to verify that the spiritual had happened. Now, while the physical resurrection of our bodies would have no point, because we're not going to stay on this planet. You know, we're not going to be breathing Earth's oxygen and eating Earth's food after we physically die. So, what do we need a body for? Now, the question. I put to you is, was Yeshua's resurrected body different? Was it a glorified body? So people all say, well, when he, when he raised, he was raised in a glorified body. Really? What made it glorified? 
I want to present to you that the body that came out of the grave was the exact same body that went in the grave. What did he, what did he tell Timothy? No, not Timothy. Thomas, when he said, uh, well, look at my hands. Look at my side. A resurrected body has the scars from the old body? That doesn't sound like a good deal, does it? It's the same body. Now, you might be thinking, well, after the resurrection, he walked through walls, right? Look at John twenty nineteen. So when it was evening, this is after the resurrection, that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the... So the disciples, they're scared, so then they got the doors shut. All right, Yeshua came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. If you just all of a sudden show up in the midst of a room, that's a good thing to say, peace. All right, relax, calm down, I'm here, you know. But notice the text doesn't say he walked through any walls, it just simply says he appeared in the midst. And people say, well, that implies it's a different body. You know he did that exact same kind of thing before he was raised from the dead. Look at Luke 4. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. He is, Yeshua's preaching and they're mad. They don't like it, alright? So they got up, they drove him out of the city, they led him to the brow of the hill which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. This is what they do when they don't like you preaching. Take you and throw you off the cliff, alright? But watch what happens. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Here's this angry mob. They were to throw him over and all of a sudden, where'd he go? You think he just walked through and they're like, okay, excuse us. Let us. They're, they're angry. They want to throw him over. Now he's gone. How do you do that? He's a God man. He does things most people don't do, okay? Now think about this. Yeshua was spiritually raised while still in his physical body. And the Bible says the same thing about believers. Look at Romans 6. Therefore, we have been buried. We is referring to believers. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. This baptism here is not talking about water. It's not talking you put you in the tank and you'll get wet and everything will be all right. (laughs) Baptism here is identification. Through identification in death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is not talking about biological death, so it's not talking about biological resurrection. We're united in His death spiritually. In other words, He died, we died with Him spiritually. He died for us. His death is counted as if it were our death. He was raised, we were raised. We didn't physically die, we're not physically raised. It demonstrates that we don't need to shed our physical body in order to have eternal life, in order to be resurrected. The nature of resurrection life was that a person didn't need to physically die to obtain resurrection. Alright? You can be resurrected in this body, and I want to show you that. So the resurrection that Paul said was about to happen in Acts 24 was a spiritual regathering of the covenant people. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the Old Covenant in AD 70. It wasn't biological. It wasn't dead decaying bodies. He took those believers who had been waiting for years for the resurrection, for Christ to fulfill all that He had to fulfill, to die on the cross and to return in glory. And when that happened, He took those people and moved them into the presence of God. They're no longer separated, which is to be dead. They are now in His presence, which is to be alive. For believers who have lived since A.D. 70, we are resurrected, listen, when we trust in Christ. Yeshua gives us spiritual life 
which is a resurrection from a state of spiritual death. Look at Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead. Now, he's not writing to dead people. He's writing to living people. They're dead spiritually. In our transgressions, they're dead in sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We have eternal life and therefore can never die spiritually. Therefore, we don't need a resurrection. At death, our bodies go to dust. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord forever. That's it. When a believer dies, boom, they're in heaven. They're not waiting on anything when they get there. I can't wait to get my body back. Why would you want it? Okay? Especially if you, if you died, there's probably something wrong with it. Okay? <laughs> so you don't really want that thing back. You're not going to need it. You're going into the spirit realm. And nobody there has bodies and you're not going to need a body when you get there either. Look at John 11, 25 and 26. Yeshua said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now watch. Yeshua is saying, he who believes in me will live. That means spiritually they will live. Even if he dies. That's physical. All right? Everyone who lives, that's physical, and believes in me will never die. Two categories of believers are discussed. Those who would die before the resurrection, this is before Christ, before Christ rose from the dead, and those who would not. For those who die under the old covenant, Christ is the resurrection because he's going to take those people and he's going to bring them into the presence of God. He's going to resurrect them. <clears throat> but for those who lived in the days of the new covenant, he is life. It's under the new covenant, there's no death, spiritually speaking. If there's no death, there's no need for a resurrection. We have eternal life. We can never die spiritually. Yes, we're going to die physically. Everybody dies physically. But we will not die spiritually. And spiritual death is the problem man faces. Because spiritual death is separation from God. If you die in spiritual death, you're done. You're gone. Your history. But if you have trusted in Christ when you die, you move into His presence for all eternity. So we don't need a resurrection. We've already been resurrected if we've trusted in Christ. The resurrection was a one-time event in which the old covenant saints were brought out of Hades, overcame death to be with Yahweh, their God, for all eternity. We believers, when we trust in Christ, have put on immortality. As believers, we live in the presence of Yahweh and in physical death, we drop this flesh and dwell in the spiritual realm forever to be with the Lord. Now, let me close with this. You remember that Joseph of Arimathea, when Christ died, he requested the body of Yeshua from Pilate. We got that in Matthew 27, 57, 58. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Yeshua. So he was a follower. He had trusted Christ. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Yeshua, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, here's the thing. Joseph had to be extremely wealthy and influential to be able to approach Pilate personally. So this is a man of some influence. We also understand from Roman law that he had to be next of kin to receive the body. So somehow he's related here to get this body. Now, in an extra-biblical, got that? Not in the Bible, but an extra-biblical conversation we learn that Pilate was surprised at Joseph's request. Pilate said to Joseph, I don't understand, Joseph. You are a powerful and influential man. 
and have just completed this new tomb for your family, and now you're going to use this tomb to bury a criminal? To which Joseph responded, why not? It's just for the weekend. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank You that it was just for the weekend. Lord, we thank You that our Savior rose from the dead just as He promised, and that tomb is empty. Joseph can use it for anything he wants to now. Thank You, Lord, for the faithfulness, the accuracy of Your Word. Lord, would You give us a heart that desires to know the truth of Your Word that we may live for You. Father, I thank You that for those of us who have put our trust in You, we have eternal life. We will live on forever. We have a great hope. Thank You, Lord, for that. We love You. Amen.